Though allies during World War II, the United States and Russia became bitter rivals following the conflict as the two fought for technological dominance in the ensuing four decades. This period, known as the Cold War, was plagued with uncertainty as both nations had developed nuclear weapons and threatened, time and again, to use them against one another. In addition, Europe, which had seen the ravages of the Nazi regime throughout the 1930s and 40s, once again fell prey to invasion, this time under Russian forces, as several so-named Eastern Bloc countries were consolidated under communist rule. Thus, what British Prime Minister Winston Churchill referred to as the Iron Curtain divided the continent, separating the free countries of Western Europe with those of the Soviet East. But the Cold War wasn't just limited to sovereignty over land, sea, and air. By the mid-1950s, it had come to encompass space as well. To reference the intro to Gene Roddenberry's classic sci-fi series Star Trek, space was indeed seen as the final frontier, and the United States and Russia eyed it hungrily, noting its seemingly endless possibilities. So began the infamous space race between the two powers, but who ultimately would win out? Let's hop aboard the USS History Loves Company and embark on a mission that's truly out of this world, because history is shaped by all of us. The end of World War II saw the United States emerge as the dominant world power. This was asserted on August 6th and 9th, 1945, respectively, when a pair of atomic bombs were dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, bringing the last remaining Axis power to its knees. With Emperor Hirohito officially signing Japan's surrender on September 2nd that same year, the war was brought to its end. But while this bit of news allowed the world to breathe a collective sigh of relief, many were stunned by the United States' capabilities at such a weapon. As to be expected, it wasn't long before the Soviets began developing their own nuclear arsenal. The late 1940s and early 1950s saw the United States taking incredible strides in regards to technological development and advancement. 1946, for example, saw the creation of the world's first programmable computer at the University of Pennsylvania. The Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, better known by its acronym ENIAC, according to contemporary reports, was, quote, able to solve a large class of numerical problems through reprogramming, unquote. To give you an idea as to how much energy it used, a glitch caused the entirety of New York City to black out for a whole minute. In addition, the United States was also the first country in the world to break the sound barrier, a feat which took place in a Southern California desert on October 14, 1947. The research from this event led to the development of fighter jets in the United States Air Force, which can fly faster than the speed of sound. Nuclear tests were conducted out in the open ocean and in the Nevada desert, not only to study their effects on the populace, but also to improve their destructive capabilities. In short, it was a time of great scientific achievement. And, for a time, the United States government was assured of its place at the top of the proverbial food chain. This was backed by U-2 spy plane flights over Moscow and other parts of the Soviet Union, which provided intelligence that America did, in fact, hold the advantage in nuclear capability. But a study in the mid to late 1950s revealed some shocking revelations to the American people. They discovered that the Soviets were training two or three times as many scientists per year as they were. In addition, much like the notorious Operation Paperclip, in which some 1,600 Nazi scientists were brought to the United States for their intel and expertise, the Soviet Union had followed a similar procedure with Operation Osoviakim, which brought more than 6,000 Nazi specialists over to their side of the Iron Curtain. What ensued was a secret arms race between the two powers, in which both nations utilized their newfound German intel to develop rocket-powered ballistic missiles. The big shock, however, came in the days after August 29, 1949, when the United States discovered through 
spy plane fights and reconnaissance missions that the Soviets had in fact successfully tested their first atomic bomb in Kazakhstan, then part of the Soviet Union. No sooner had then-President Harry S. Truman brought this matter to the public's attention that the fears of the Cold War reached their fever pitch, with citizens on both sides of the Iron Curtain constantly on edge as to when nuclear conflict would break out. Luckily, we know now that that never happened. What transpired instead was a frenzied race for scientific and technological domination, in which the United States and Soviet Union tried to outdo each other as far as industrial advancement and weapons of mass destruction were concerned. What with the development of long-range ballistic missiles on both sides, it naturally wasn't long before the two powers began considering the exploration of space as both a necessary measure for national security, as well as further proof of their respective dominance. On July 29, 1955, the U.S. government officially announced its plan to launch artificial satellites into space, to which the Soviets responded four days later on August 2nd that they, too, would be launching one of their own in the near future. Thus the space race was set in motion, with the Soviet space program quickly being organized and put to work. Over the next couple years, both countries continued to build up and test their missile capabilities, as it was deemed that this technology would be the launchpad from which they'd be able to get to space. But much to the Americans' surprise and horror, their Soviet adversaries had somehow gained the upper hand. On October 4, 1957, over two years after their response to the United States' satellite announcement, the Russians launched one of their own, the first man-made satellite ever to be launched. It was known as Sputnik 1, consisting of a polished metal orb for a body with four radio antennae protruding from its backside. It was launched into space by, you guessed it, intercontinental ballistic missile technology. Its objective was to simply orbit the Earth, which it did, over a three-week period before its batteries ultimately ran out. In that time, it orbited the planet 1,440 times and traveled a total of 43 million miles, or 70 million kilometers. All the while, it transmitted a series of beeps back to the Soviet space program's base of operations at Gargarin's start in what's now Kazakhstan. Said beeps could easily be intercepted by radio experts and enthusiasts worldwide, and there were, in fact, several instances of amateur radio engineers who reported hearing Sputnik's pings through their sets. As you could probably guess from everything up to this point, by the time news of Sputnik 1's orbit reached the U.S. government, everyone was up in arms about it, and not in a good way. Not only had the Soviets beaten the Americans in the race to space, but their launching of a satellite into orbit brought into perspective the frightening possibilities of the Russians' ballistic missile capabilities. Up until that point, the United States had a preconceived notion, based largely upon their spy plane reconnaissance missions, that their Soviet adversaries were years behind them in regards to both ballistics and space technology. In addition, geographically speaking, America had always been isolated from Europe's wars and conflicts due to its distance from the continent. When faced with the chance of imminent destruction, fear ran rampant in all facets of society. Such an event posed a threat to national security, as well as that of those of European nations outside the Iron Curtain. Also fanning the flames of concern was the fact that the Soviets had been clever enough not to post any photos of Sputnik in any of the country's newspapers or magazines, making this phantom menace that much more terrifying. Noting the severity of the situation, it wasn't long before then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower addressed the nation. On October 9th, five days after the satellite's launch, he delivered a somber speech in which he declared three stark facts all Americans needed to confront. One, that the Soviets had surpassed the United States and the rest of the free world in scientific and technological advancements in outer space. Two, that if the Soviets maintained said superiority, they might use it against America as a way to undermine its leadership and prestige. And three, that if the Soviets were the first to achieve a significant military capability in outer space, and therefore created an imbalance of power, that they could well pose a direct military threat to the United States.
The prospect seemed grave, and indeed it's hard to imagine what must have been going through the average American's mind when faced with such dire circumstances, especially when the leader of the free world was calling for Americans, quote, to meet the challenges with resourcefulness and vigor, and to scrutinize schools' curriculums and standards in order to meet the demands of the era they were entering, unquote. Needless to say, President Eisenhower's speech did little to quell the nation's fears and concerns. In the days following both the launch and his address, the astronomy department at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign measured and studied Sputnik signals by using a device known as an interferometer. An interferometer uses interference to gain and extract information from something, specifically microscopic elements and or those not seen by the naked eye. By utilizing this technique, astronomy students were able to calculate the satellite's orbit based upon the data they gathered from the interferometer. It took only two days to gather this information, and was published a month later in the British science magazine Nature, at which time it managed to dispel some of the fears surrounding Soviet dominance of both space and nuclear weapons by suggesting that the launch was nothing more than a concerted effort on behalf of the Soviets to simply beat the United States in the space race. Though the University of Illinois study did manage to calm some nerves, it did nothing to put a halt on the United States government's fervor to reach space. On the contrary, they took President Eisenhower's advice to heart and worked even harder to ultimately surpass the Russians. On February 1, 1958, just shy of four months after Sputnik's launch, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, in Pasadena, California, launched a satellite of their own, Explorer 1. Though it transmitted data longer than its Soviet counterpart, nearly four months, its batteries ultimately died on May 23 that same year. But unlike Sputnik, which fell back to Earth on January 4, 1958, three months to the day after its launch, Explorer 1 orbited the planet for a whopping 12 years, a span of time that amounted to some 58,376 cycles around the Earth, until it, too, came crashing down in the Pacific Ocean on March 31, 1970. In addition, on July 29, 1958, a new government-funded organization came into being with its base of operations in Washington, D.C., one that would help facilitate any future space missions or programs. Known as the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or by its more famous acronym, NASA, it oversaw not only the first American manned missions into space in the early 1960s, but also the first, and to date, the only lunar landing in history in 1969, a vision originally proposed by President John F. Kennedy in 1961, when he famously declared that the United States would, quote, put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, unquote. Now, over 60 years later, NASA has grown into one of the leading space agencies in the world and has worked with those of several other nations to not only build up their own space programs, but to continue to conduct research and exploration of the aforementioned final frontier. Though the space race may be over, humanity's curiosity for what lies beyond our world becomes greater with each passing year and new discovery. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I apologize for skipping last week. I've been having issues with my internet the past couple weeks, which these days can be very debilitating, making it difficult for me to do research. At least for now, thank goodness, my internet's back up and running. Let's just hope it stays that way. I appreciate your continued support, and it truly keeps me going. I'd like to thank all my supporters and listeners for tuning in every week. If you enjoy my content and would like to support me to ensure future content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget, especially in these trying times. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts, as it can be found on all streaming platforms. Join me again next week as we venture into the bogs of Denmark to meet a truly remarkable man right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.